Before we get into this week's episode, I wanted to remind you that my short story is available for free at johntilton.com. If you sign up for my newsletter, I'll send you both the ebook and audiobook of Doomed Dune. In this middle grade adventure, a girl named Melina travels to a forbidden landmark guarded by tyrannical robots, but her life turns upside down when she discovers the true reason it's off limits. Discover Doom Doom Secret by heading over to johntilton.com. That's J-O-N-T-I-L-T-O-N.com. Thanks again, and I hope you enjoy this week's episode. Welcome to Cause of Craft. I'm your host, John Tilton. Why do we create? Where do our ideas come from? What does our craft say about us? These are the ideas we explore here on the show. Each episode, I interview a different guest, from writers and painters to musicians and filmmakers. Together, we investigate the creative process and the reasons behind why we create. My guest this week is Ashley Wellman, an author and the owner of the Amused Gallery in Eureka Springs, Arkansas. We talk about what goes into producing a quality book, finding a creative process that works for you, and of course, the reason behind why she creates. If you enjoy this podcast, please consider sharing your favorite episodes with a friend. It really helps the show grow, and I appreciate your support. I hope you enjoy this week's conversation. Thank you so much, Ashley, for joining the podcast. It's great to have you on the show. Oh, thank you, John. I'm so excited to be here. So you have an interesting story with how you got involved in all these creative things that you do. Can you share with us a little bit about that journey? Oh, I would love to. Okay, so my (laughs) journey is definitely one with a lot of twists and turns. I've always been a creative human being. So my poor parents and brother were subjected to reenactments and my own interpretation of like the whole Wizard of Oz film in the middle of the living room growing up. But there came a point where that creative dream was kind of shunned and said that that's not really a career that you can chase. And so I went the very traditional route of pursuing higher education. And I actually achieved the um, getting my PhD in criminology. And so for almost two decades, I've been a professor teaching criminal justice and criminology to college students and working with um, you know survivors of crime and, and doing that very serious uh, focus in my life. And then in 2018, my whole world kind of switched upside down. I lost my best friend and husband to a pulmonary embolism. And at the time, I had our daughter who was four. Her name is Reagan. And in that moment, I knew that my career and everything that had really been critical in my life for defining who I was didn't matter anymore because my role of mom and wife had very much shifted. And so I'm grateful because a dear friend of mine actually looked at a picture of my daughter dancing with her very best friend, who was a cute little posable skeleton. And he said, I I don't know what it is, but you need to write a children's book about Reagan and her best friend Fresno. And it needs to be something that makes her magical in the middle of grief, right? That allows her to kind of feel special and to shine. And I thought, I have zero business writing a children's book, given what I study. And um, two days later, I had a manuscript in my hand and shared it with this friend. And he so brilliantly connected me with his son, Zachary Thomas Kincaid. So that's Thomas Kincaid's nephew, And Zach became my very first illustrator of The Girl Who Dances with Skeletons, My Friend Fresno. Um, This was kind of this 
whim. It was just a gift to my daughter. I wanted to hold it in my hand and say, I did this for you. And COVID hit. And I remember thinking, what am I doing? You know, my life has changed so much. The only thing that's really made me smile is this children's book I've written. I was in the process of writing a young adult novel with Patrick. And um, I said, you know, I, I feel colors. I feel alive. I feel magical when I'm creating. So, John, I quit my job, drove in to the middle of Eureka Springs, Arkansas. I had never, ever visited Eureka Springs. Rented a shop. <laughs> with zero clue of what I was going to be doing. And then I said, well, I'm stuck. I'm going to quit my job and chase my creative dream. And what does that look like? And um, very quickly, I came up with this idea that I was going to open an art gallery slash bookstore that selfishly celebrated my children's books and young adult novels, but also let my illustrators shine as both fine artists and illustrators. And so I started reaching out to incredible artists through Instagram, believe it or not, and asking them twofold questions. You know, one, will you illustrate a children's book? And I sent a manuscript to them. And two, will you allow me to feature your artwork on the walls of my art gallery, Amused Fine Art and Extraordinary Books? And we just celebrated our one-year anniversary of this kind of crazy magical journey. Well, congratulations. And I want to talk more about Amused, the fine art gallery in a second. But first, I want to back up to something that just was so interesting to me because it's so different from, well, I guess your whole story is very unique, obviously. But although I think a lot of people can relate to that growing up creatively and also, you know, whether it's their parents or their friends or themselves suppressing that creative impulse because they feel like, well, that's not going to pay the bills or like, I should probably do something, you know, more serious, <laughs> like you were saying. But what really stood out to me was when you were talking about how your first children's book idea came about, a lot of authors and artists, when they describe how they come up with an idea, it's something that's inside of themselves, like the, like an image that pops into their own mind. But here you had someone that was completely outside of yourself viewing something and saying, you should do a children's book about that. Uh, and what was, what was that experience like, especially now that you've done other children's books? I don't know if these are also from ideas that other people have planted into your mind, but if they weren't, how was that process different from having someone suggest something to maybe coming up with the initial idea from your own mind? Oh, yeah. Okay. So it was so freeing to have my friend tell me, go create this. Like, it was funny because he said, I don't know what it looks like, but it's got to be based around this picture of Reagan with this toy skeleton. She was probably two in the picture dancing with a skeleton. And as I sat back and thought about it, Reagan and I had had some pretty deep conversations after the death of her dad. And one of the things she told me is, you know, I lost my dad and I'm always going to be different now. And there's going to be a lot of hard things because I don't have my dad. And I remember one night I was looking at this picture going, okay, what's this story going to really look like? And I thought, look at how different Reagan and Fresno are. So you have this posable skeleton and you have Reagan, this beautiful blonde haired kiddo dancing with this skeleton and something that should horrify her, should scare her, something that's radically different from her is her best friend. And I thought about that conversation where she said, I'm always going to be different now. And I said, you know, there's beauty 
in this idea of celebrating our differences and finding the magic in those differences, despite some of the challenges or, you know, coupled with some of the challenges. And so him suggesting to write it, but really not knowing how that story would be told was the first time I had been given permission as an adult to dive into that creative side. So it lit a fire inside of me. Several, you know, a couple of weeks later, Pat had actually said, okay, your children's book was, was brilliant. I, I think he's crazy, but he, he said it was brilliant. And then he said, do you want to write this fantasy novel trilogy with me? I've been, you know, fantasizing about this novel and I'd love you to write it with me. And Reagan at four was actually one of the ones who started feeding those ideas for, you know, I'd ask her, what should these kids be chasing? What's the, what's the key to unlocking this story? And a four-year-old was giving me her ideas of this ghost driven, you know, novel for teens. Um, and then since then, it's really just been those kind of crazy quirky ideas that have snuck into my head. I have a fixed up fairy tale series that, um, you know, I was telling Reagan a bedtime story and, um, I was making it funny and I thought, why not write this down? Um, so it was, you know, princess and the pea and Goldilocks and those kinds of things being told in a funny way. Um, the crypto creature with our dear friend, Joe, that you've interviewed, um, that whole series is just a wacky exploration of imaginary things. So it's my permission to be a kid and to dream when for several years I've struggled to say like, do I have that permission to do so? Yeah. And that's such an important kind of, I don't know if it's the rite of passage is the right word or something, but it's funny because it's this thing that really everyone always has permission. If you're listening to this, both Ashley and I give you permission to do your creative <laughs> Go thing. Create. But, Go create. But it really is this thing where you at least need to be giving it permission to yourself. But some people, they have this block where they can't be the person to allow themselves to do it. They have to hear it from someone else. Right. And so it's so cool that you were given that gift of this initial idea. And then the way you describe it, like it very quickly became your own and again, related to your circumstances. And that's just such a cool way how everything unfolded. Now, going back to the store or the, do you call it a store or fine art gallery? Yeah, like what's it's the, whatever, whatever you want. Gallery, store, it's just my baby. Absolutely. Now, now, a lot of people, when they're chasing a creative career, they'll, they'll be like, okay, I'm going to start slowly, do one thing at a time. Here we go. And, you know, expand. Jumping to the store seems like a, a really big <laughs> leap to me, right? <laughs> like doing the author stuff alone is so difficult that managing like an art gallery too, and having the property and all these things, what was it about that idea that really set your sights on wanting to achieve that? Okay, so I'm an overachiever to the core. And anyone who meets me is going to be like, Oh, Ashley does a million things. I've always been like that. I always need to have kind of my hands in different projects. Um, for me, it was saying, Okay, I'm a single mom, I'm a widow. I have a daughter who we have to pay the bills, we have to do something. And I was leaving a very successful career like I had built for, you know, 15 years, um, who Dr. Ashley Wellman was. And by kind of abandoning that, I knew I had to come up with something that was going to take care of my family. And so it was scary and horrifying, but I said, I'm going to take a risk on myself. And it, that was a creation in and of itself, you know, coming up with the concept, finding my artist, having the 
uh, inspiration from my illustrators on the wall, getting to brag about them every time a customer comes in, getting to celebrate some of my artists who didn't even have art collections. Um, you know, uh, our friend Joe had these gorgeous prints that I could, you know, borrow from him and sell. Um, but there were very young artists that I was working with that they said, I'd love to illustrate your book. I've never done an art collection. I've never done commissioned pieces. And so we actually started with these collections and I almost got to be that teacher mentor from a different perspective as the creative mentoring these young artists. And so it was um, something that actually fueled my ability to be creative. And then I'm a nut. I still teach as an adjunct professor online for Ole Miss. I still um, do a true crime podcast to keep my feet in that. So yeah, I never am going to sit still. If you're around me, you're going to be exhausted by the time you leave. Um, that's, just, that's just the way that my life kind of goes. When you're pursuing these things, are you researching something, looking for people who have done it before, going with your gut? What guides you through this process of figuring out how you're going to write the book, how you're going to manage the gallery, how you're going to connect with artists, all of these sorts of things that come together to form your creative life that you've made? There's a mix of that. There's a mix of following my gut. I, um, you know, I made a promise to myself that I'm going to trust myself to go down this road. And when I feel it, I'm going to jump on it. And, um, but I do that with restraint. I have a lot of amazing friends. I have a lot of amazing kiddos in my life that are amazing resources for me. Um, I have a, you know, Pat's been an amazing business mentor. I, when I got started with the shop, I've you know, been able to kind of do it more on my own now. But there have been a lot of both business and creative mentors in my life who have said, you know, here's what I've done. But that doesn't always work. You know that, John, right? Like whatever someone does in their store, in their book, in their um, path doesn't always work. So I remember um, a lot of, you know, artists and, and authors talking to me about, you've really got to go the traditional publication route, you know, like that's how you're going to get big and successful. And I thought, I don't even know if that's my, my goal, but I'm going to hold that book in my hand. I, you know, I'm going to do it myself. And I, I have a warehouse of all of my children's books. So like the riskiest way you could go to pay for <laughs> your books, to have them in your hand, to be the one responsible for selling them. I've really kind of taken ownership of that. And I think part of that's a trauma response, right? Like having control of my uh, surroundings and and creative capacity. Um, but the other part of that is I'm confident that if I believe in it, it's going to work. And so I just keep that faith. And then I do, I turn to really smart kids to read through my books with me, to give me suggestions. Um, my partner, my parents, I ask everybody. And then I kind of sit back and I take what I need from each conversation. As someone who's aiming for the indie publisher route as well, I resonate a lot with that kind of the control aspect too, where not as much as like being controlling about how everything is, although maybe that's part of it too sometimes, <laughs> but just the idea that you're kind of in more in control of your own destiny, because if you're going traditional, it's this layers of getting yeses, right? Like you have to get an agent to say yes, the publisher say yes. And then the marketing team be like, oh, out of all the ones that we've purchased, this is the one we're going to give the big budget to. And so instead pinning your future on yourself 
and being able to adjust and say, oh, this isn't working. So I'm going to try something else because, you know, in your case, I've invested in a warehouse of books. And if I don't try something else, then I'm out all the investment that I made. And so really putting yourself like it's betting on yourself, but then also like, well, because I have put myself in that situation, like I need to figure out how to make the most of it no matter what happens versus things being out of your control. It kind of is, you know, you might tend more to be like, oh, well, it's not working out for whatever reason. (laughs) That's exactly right. I mean, you really are. You're taking a risk on yourself and then you have to make it work. There's just kind of no option. And so for me, I, I, one of the reasons I think I did go big or go home was like, now that's my identity and you fight to make that identity a success, um, for yourself, for the people around you. Um, for me, when you think about traditional publishing, I, as a mother, you know, I sit back and some of the most popular books or books that, you know, Ray brings home, I go, um, not a, not a fan, like cute, not a fan. Um, so there's a lot of beautiful indie books that don't make it traditionally. There's a lot of traditional books that I'm not sure how they made it. Um, <laughs> <laughs> then, and then there's the opposite, right? There's a lot of indie books that, that aren't done well, that aren't done with the, um, you know, the passion, the ability to commit to a certain quality. Um, and a lot of traditional books that are stellar. So to me, it's it's this decision of what do you need out of your creative career. I wanted to say, I'm here's my presence, here's my footprint, and I'm not going to wait for someone to tell me that I can share it with the world. I, I'm going to share it. And what's cool as an indie author is that I own the copyrights to all that. That's my baby. So 10 years from now, if someone finally does look over and go, whoa, she's a cool bird, I wouldn't mind helping her out. I can always go the traditional route down the road, but I couldn't wait. Reagan needed that book in her hand. I found out that, that my first book started to impact kids with you know special magical abilities and kids that had been through trauma and kids that had been bullied and um, you know kids that needed the story. And I've been able to get into schools and share way more powerful messages than just the the pages of my book. So I wanted to say, here I am world, and I'm willing to financially risk that. And then like you said, I mean, I said, I'm going to open up a store and then you're forced to see my books. So it's been this kind of fun journey that in that direction. And I really agree with that. You know, you breaking down the different, there could be good and bad indie books and there can be good and bad traditionally published books. And it's not necessary. Like, I I think 10 years ago, it was like, oh, if you're indie, you did, you know, it's because you couldn't get traditionally published. But I think today, most people see that that's really not the case. And it's really taking a look at the actual product itself and deciding if it's something of quality or of worth or has some sort of merit that's, that's worthy to them. And so for you, what is it about a book, whether it's what you put into your own work or when you go to the store and pick out something that you didn't write for your daughter, what goes into that decision? Like, what what are you looking for? Or does that change every time? Uh, it might depend on what, you know, what we need at the time in our home. But one of the things I look at when I'm looking at books is really the time and the effort and the quality that goes into it. Like I knew the moment that I was going to pull the trigger 
it was going to be a hardcover book with a dust jacket with the thickest pages you could do, you know, like high quality paper. Um, it felt good in your hands. It felt like someone had invested time and money. Um, I hired editors. I did all of this work to say, this is going to look like it should sit next to where the wild things are, or it should sit next to, you know, love you forever. Um, whatever my goal was, I wanted my books to look like someone paid me to to publish them. And so I encourage a lot of indie authors who come in the shop and they're talking to me, you know, I said, this is a labor of love. And it's something that you really do have to take a risk on your family and yourself with, you know, whether it's using, you know, like a GoFundMe or a Kickstarter or things like that, if you don't have the ability to invest big in the, in the front, you want to take the time to make that book quality because you're not supposed to judge a book by its cover, but you do. And the the illustrator you pick, um, the way the story bounces off the page from that very first cover, from the way you, when you open the book and you read that first line, you're hooked. I mean, those things matter. And for me, I make sure that there's like a little blurb on the, you know, inside front cover that says, this is basically the message your baby's going to get. So for me, that first book, when you open it up, before you even turn the first page, it says, sometimes our greatest friends are the ones you least expect. Um, you know, so it's this concept of celebrating our differences and loving people who may not look, think, or act like us. And so parents know wow, this has a message that can translate to a lot of things my baby needs. So I'll have someone pick the book up and they'll say, oh, you know, my child um, has Down syndrome or my child is autistic. My child really struggles with bullying. I think this could be a great fit. They know that right off the bat. So when I'm shopping, I do the same thing. I look immediately at that book and I'm like, oh, this is cute. This is funny. This might inspire her to be creative or quirky. Oh, this celebrates a child with unique abilities. Oh, this story, you know, conceptualizes these animals, but they're really talking about um, acceptance and, you know, embracing others or whatever it is. I'm looking instantly. I need to instantly know why that book's magical. And so looks do matter, <laughs> knowing very quickly what that book entails and being able to kind of capture it from the cover inside, you know, in is really important to us. So we shop with our eyes and, you know, pick up books that we go, there's going to be some magic in here. You can just feel it. There's certain books you pick them up and you go, Ooh, this one feels magical. Well, you're speaking my language here. Cause I'm in kind of the home stretch phase of doing the final preparations for my first novel and on the whiteboard of things that I have to keep in mind, I just now this is subjective, but it goes to the the aim that you're talking about and the aim that I have where it says, create the best book so that wherever your book is, it's the best option. Mm -hmm. Now that's that's mm -hmm. subjective, mm -hmm. but it's the aim that like, okay, someone sees it and it's quality. And then under that I have, you know, in what category is story, editing, cover, blurb, character, and message. That's what makes a good product, a good book, yes. not, yes. not that it came from Penguin, you know? No, that exactly. It, and yeah. that's like with my novel, novels are so different than kids books, right? You don't have a bunch of pictures where they can flip through and be like, cute artist, right? Yeah. <laughs> it's just the cover. So for me, you know, I, I invested heavily in a, in a cover illustrator, someone who was going to capture what I wanted. I took it upon myself to present that artist with 
you know, 10 different ideas of this is what I'm looking for. I love this cover. I do not want it to look like clip art. I do not want it to look like a, you know, augmented reality character. Um, this is what I want. And so I was able to work collaboratively with the artist who did the cover art. And then it becomes very important because if you pick it up, because the cover is pretty, the first thing that that person does is they turn it over and they read the blurb on the back. There's things you just can't sacrifice on when you want your book to soar. You've got to, editing matters, looks matter, all of those things. And you want, you want to really um, shop it with friends and family and people who may be more honest than friends and family and say what works, what doesn't. Like I had, I think 20 beta readers for my novel and I asked them, I gave them a worksheet and wanted brutal honesty. What character doesn't work? What character was your favorite and why? Is there any chapter that needs to move? Any events that don't make sense? And it, it was it was rough. It was, <laughs> it was rough reading through it because you give them your best self. You give them your heart on paper. And then I got amazing feedback that made my book better. And so it's keeping that kind of reflexive hunt for getting your book to the best if you open a book and there's a spelling error on the second page, it, people get frustrated. It kind of takes away the quality or like the trust they have with you as an author. So there's always going to be errors. My novel came out with an error in the bio, but there's that hunt to say, I'm going to do everything I can to make sure it's been beta tested. It's been edited. It's been approved so that when someone holds it, like you said, it's the best choice in the moment because it's quality and it feels good to them when they read it. It's so important with the beta readers too, because they're helping you make sure that you translate everything, right? Because you have something in your heart that you're expressing on the page, but you imagine everything that you were putting down on the page. And so you have that extra help in your mind when you're reviewing it to be like, well, this is how I saw it. So having that phase of having other people read it is a great way to verify that what you're trying to get across is actually coming across, which surprisingly is often not the case. And yes. like you said, it's a frustrating <laughs> experience, but then you have to really listen and figure out what to do. So that's cool to hear the similarities in our process there. So with everything you do, so running the gallery, writing books, selling books, and still doing the professor things. This sounds like a wildlife, which, which you already have described. You know, it's a, there's a lot of chaos. But how do you determine what you're working on in any given day? How do you find the focus to both concentrate on doing each thing well while still juggling so many plates at the same time? Okay, so I'm the worst um, mentor as a writer. I'm a chaotic, manic creative so I do this thing where one, I procrastinate big time and I'm like, oh my God, I just can't, I just can't. It's too big of a deal, you know? And I, I build up something as easy as like reading through the children's book for one last edit or, you know, looking at the illustrations in order. It's just like, oh my God, I just can't. And then all of a sudden I get this huge burst of, I have to, like it's, it's do or die. I'm ready to pull the trigger. And I create magic. And then I'm completely depleted and I won't open anything creative for days, weeks, maybe a month. And then all of a sudden I'm back at this kind of burst of productivity. So, you know, I, I, I'm had the amazing gift to go 
to the writer's colony here in Eureka Springs for five nights and to write without babies, without, you know, having to be responsible for other things, close the shop. And I wrote 10 chapters, but I will tell you, I've only written one since I went there three months ago. So it's, it's these bursts of uh, permission to write, permission to create. And I am balancing, you know, like five or six creative projects at a time as a writer. So each illustrator is at different stages with me. Um, each manuscript's at different stages. So sometimes it's like, well, today I'm just going to go through the three that need grammar editing and then I'm done. And I really have to sh- file it away and wait for that energy to come back. Cause for me, I'm a pure emotional creative. So even when it's just looking at the illustrations, there's something that's almost um, invigorating and exhausting at the same time. I don't know if that makes sense. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But I get, I get exhausted creatively and then I have to step back and go like, it's just not going to happen today. And that's okay. I remember even writing my dissertation. It was like, if you could write 15 minutes a day, you'd actually write an hour a day and you'd be really productive. And I went, who the heck is doing that? Like, I don't know who that person is, but it's not me. Um, I wish I was a Stephen King who could sit down for, you know, two hours every day and write, but I'm, I'm a bad example. I am a burst of, of crazy creativeness and then a napper. <laughs> Well, you're a good example for finding what works for you, right? Because I think that really is the key to everyone. So hearing different people's ways and approaches and trying them out until one of them fits your lifestyle and fits what you need to be able to get it done. Because at the end of the day, that's the important bit, right? Like the fact that you're able to get that book on someone's shelf, that was the goal. And so whether you did it in a burst of writing or a little bit every day, at the end, you know, you reached what your goal is. And that's the important thing to figure out how to do it. Oh, yeah. And being flexible. I mean, I'm sure you know this, John. I am a planner. I am OCD to a T. Like, you know, by age 25, this is going to happen. 28, this is going to happen. You know, next week, these three things are going to happen. I've really had to learn as a creative to give myself permission to say, oh, that's that was my goal. And it didn't happen. Or, you know, that was my goal. I I upheld my part of the bargain, but you know, my illustrator got sick, or shipping got delayed, or the printers closed for COVID. You know, it was a lot of um learning to not be so devastated when artificial deadlines didn't happen because our creative things, what what I forget sometimes, and I have to remind myself. Once it's created, that's my evergreen creative product. It is forever my baby and it's out in the world, you know? So does it really matter if it's June versus October? Probably not. Like I want it out. <laughs> I want to hold that book in my hand, but I've, I've grown a lot um, being forced into that creative journey with other people and saying you can only control so much, which is real scary for me. And then learning, like, it's okay not to control all of it. It's okay for things to change. And for someone who hasn't always been in that kind of creative pool, that's been one of my, I think, biggest lessons is going with the flow a little bit more and and realizing once that baby's in your hands, it was worth every moment you had to wait for it. Now, we already talked about why you first got into the creative side of yourself, but with all these challenges that we're talking about, all these, you know, just different things that you have to keep in mind, these plates that you have to juggle, what keeps you creating 
now that you've released multiple books? Like what keeps everything exciting for you to work on new projects, to continue connecting with new artists for the gallery? What keeps you creating on a daily basis? Or on a once a month basis, depending yeah, on what, exactly. what creative realm you're in that. <laughs> exactly. I, I feel like it's almost like I'm a college kid kind of exploring who I'm really becoming. I completely abandon my core identity and shifted to say, I'm going to be this creative. And every time I make progress on a project, every time I have another book come out, there's something that just makes me feel proud in a very different way than I've ever felt. Um, my daughter, you know, brags at school to her friends. She asked, can I come be a reader at the library? Um, I have some bonus babies who, you know, like they bragged their friends, like my, you know, my stepmom's a, a writer. She, she writes books and it's so cool. And they're different ages. So like one of them's asking, when's the, when's the second ghost book coming out? And, people walk back in the shop and they're like, is the second Fresno book out? Is our second fairy tale book out? And it's the fact when I hear that, I'm reminded they believe in me. This isn't just this, this isolated, insulated project I'm working on. There's my family, like quote fans, customers that, that have subscribed to this Ashley Wellman new creative project. And so it's exciting when I say like, oh my God, someone's waiting for that book. Like imagine when another book's sitting next to, you know, this artist on the shelf. And then for me too, as a business owner, when I tell people, you know, every artist in the store is an illustrator of mine, you know, and I'm bragging about them, I want them to see the fine art juxtaposed with the children's book. Because for several of my artists, they're actually quite radically different. So to see a creator create such a vast um, kind of um, presentation of materials, you know, like their illustrations opposed to their fine art, it's neat. And it's a really cool experience for a creative lover. And so for me, it's saying, okay, I want to be accountable and I want to make my family proud. I want to make myself proud. And I want to uphold the promise I made to customers who have blessed my family. And you know, come back and there's going to be another Fresno book. There's going to be another uh, fixed up fairy tale book. There's going to be a book two and three of the ghost novel. Now I have people who are waiting for that. And that seems crazy. <laughs> well, that sounds super exciting. I love all the reasoning behind that. And thank you so much for sharing your story and just everything about what you do. It's been a pleasure having you on the podcast. Can you let people know where they can read your books, see more about the fine art gallery that you run, and just where can they find more about you? Oh my goodness. Okay. So if you guys are looking to learn more about amused fine art and extraordinary books, you'll be able to take a peek at some of my incredible collaborators. That's going to be on social media at amused fine art and www.amusedfineart.com. And then if you guys are interested in a little bit more about my quirky life, I have, um, www.ashleywellman.com where you can learn more and get transferred to some of my other creative projects and uh, pages. Well, thanks again, Ashley. It's been a great pleasure having you on the podcast. I really appreciate your time. Thank you, John. Thanks for listening to this episode of Cause of Craft. You can find more information about Ashley at ashleywellman.com. And in the show notes, I have links to everything from her books to the website for her fine art gallery. If you enjoyed this episode, check out episode 37 with one of Ashley's collaborators, Joe Hawks. We discuss his journey from farm boy to artist and how to discover your place and purpose. 
Don't forget to subscribe and share your favorite episodes with a friend. Doing so really helps the show grow, and I appreciate your support. And if you have feedback, suggestions, or guest recommendations, send an email to john at causeofcraft.com. That's j-o-n at causeofcraft.com. Thanks again for listening, and see you next week.